all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Oh, I would that the church could hear the Saviour addressing these words to her now, for the words of Christ are living words, not having power in them yesterday alone, but today also. That's Spurgeon's text, and that's Spurgeon's prayer as he begins a sermon preached on April the 21st of 1861 on behalf of the Baptist Missionary Society at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington. The sermon is entitled The Missionary's Charge and Charter. It is, again, very typical of Spurgeon to express this uh, earnest longing for the spread of the gospel both near and far. We're working our way through the sermons of Charles Spurgeon, and this is our featured sermon for this week. It's number 383 in the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit series. We're in volume 7 of the complete series. And here Spurgeon is uh, pleading with the people of God to take seriously this charge and charter to the church and those who are sent from her to go and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He feels the weight of this. He says, I felt myself carried away by its power as I meditated on the text in private. He has a sense that the heathen are perishing. Shall we let them perish, that Christ's name is blasphemed? Shall we be quiet and still, that the honour of Christ is cast into the dust, and his foes revile his person and resist his throne? Shall we, his soldiers, suffer this, or allow this, and not find our hands feeling for the hilt of our sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God? What you've got then is a preacher who has felt the weight of his text, who's felt the impress of of what the Lord Jesus is saying at this point through the Spirit uh, as the Word of God has been recorded at the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verses 18 and 19. And so he says, I don't really know how to begin to preach this morning, but still it seems to me, standing here, as if I heard that voice saying, Go thou therefore and teach all nations. And my soul sometimes pants and longs for the liberty to preach Christ where he was never preached before, not to build upon another man's foundation, but to go to some untrodden land, some waste where the foot of Christ's minister was never seen, that there the military place might be glad for us and the wilderness rejoice and blossom as the rose. I've made it a solemn question, he asks, whether I might not testify in China or India the grace of Jesus, and in the sight of God I have answered it. What he's meaning here is that he himself has wrestled with the question of whether or not he should go and preach the gospel in another place. But he has reached the conclusion that his situation in England demands that he remains. And so really he's preaching almost vicariously here. He's saying, this is my appetite. This is my instinct. Who will go for us? Who will go on behalf of the congregation? Who will speak on behalf of the congregation's God? Who will declare this congregation's Christ? And oh, he says that once again, the voice of thunder could be heard and the lightning spirit could penetrate each heart that as one man, the entire church might take the marching orders of her Lord and go teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of Israel's God. 
He then has these two elements that he wants to draw out of the text, the command itself and then the argument, the, the reasoning that is there in the text. And uh, you can feel the, the text almost bubbling up out of him. You can see the structure, that basic alignment of those two issues. But then within those, there's uh, lots of different things happening in slightly different directions. First, he says then, and very briefly indeed, uh, although he's actually not going to be that brief, a few things about the commander. I should say, I think he intends to be brief. He just uh, bubbles up out of him. So, with regard to this command to go and teach all nations, uh, a couple of comments about the quality of the command, really, that it is loving and that it is plain. It is singularly or distinctively loving. And he draws a contrast between uh, Christ and Muhammad and says that if Muhammad had been told that he had all power, he would be sending forth his armies to conquer with swords and spears. But Christ, though far more despised and persecuted of men, and having a real power, he says, go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Christ's is the voice of love, not of wrath. Christ is the one who, as the true prophet of God, tells his people not to go and, and to smash and to destroy and to cut down, but rather to bring down every high thought and to teach the truth as it is concerning himself. And then it's a very plain command. There's no complication in the teaching notion. He says the, the Romish church tries to mystify all nations. It loves to dress up uh, itself and, and, and overwhelm with, with, with visions and appearances and so forth. But the true missionary is a teacher. It's the mother's work with her child, the tutor's work with the scholar. How simple this is, says Spurgeon. This is his instruction, his encouragement then to those who would make Christ known. Illustrate, explain, expound, tell, inform, narrate. Take from them, those to whom you speak, take from them to whom you speak the darkness of ignorance. Reveal to them the light of revelation. Teach. Be content to sit down and tell them the very plainest and most common things. It is not your eloquence that shall convert them. It is not your gaudy language or your polished periods, your, your great rolling sentences that shall sway their intellects. Go and teach them. Teach them. So he's, he's urging those who will go on behalf of Christ and his church not to be distracted by other things, but rather to give themselves to preaching and teaching. And note how he puts it next. Who are to be taught? Go ye and teach all nations. So you are to, to bring the word of God to bear. You're to get down to the very the nub of things, the rudiments of of knowledge, and he actually makes a little distinction between preaching and teaching. He says, uh, "You know, preaching can almost be too big an idea. Begin with explaining the very simplicities of the cross of Christ, but to do it to all nations. The Greek with his philosophers, teach him. The polite nations, which have a literature of their own, far larger and more extensive than the literature of the Christian, teach them also. Do not debate or argue with them." 
put, do not put yourself with them upon their level as a combatant concerning certain dogmas. Insist upon it that I have sent you, says Christ. Speak in my name. And then he's concerned that all the missionaries may not have caught this idea of Christ. Many of them have, and they've been honoured with many conversions. But some perhaps have been distracted. Some have been carried off by other notions. But the fact has been proved, he says, that there are no nations incapable of being taught, more that there are no nations incapable afterwards of teaching others. Now, Spurgeon is a Victorian, and in some respects he is a typical Victorian. But what he insists upon here, as he thinks about the African nations, the the Eskimo, uh, the Hindu, he he searches around the globe, uh, Borneo, Sumatra, and Australia, uh, uh, Burma is there, uh, all these possibilities. But he's saying, let's not imagine that we're the only ones who are capable of teaching. For those who are taught should be able in their turn to teach others. So this is not some kind of what we might call today white privilege. This is not the the civilizing influence of the white man. This is first and foremost the preaching of the gospel. And it's simply a kindness of God that at that time it was known mainly in some of those what we would perhaps call the Western nations or the European nations and North America, that there were places where the gospel had burned more brightly for longer. And now it is their job to send those back out to teach others, bearing in mind that some of the places to which they would go were places where the gospel had already come from. And so he says, for example, there are Karen missionaries in Burma preaching among the Karens with as fervid an eloquence as ever was known by Whitfield. Myanmar there is is a place then where the word of God was being preached. But he also says it's not just to teach all nations, it is to baptize them. They are to be taught and afterwards to be baptized. And Spurgeon is blunt here. I don't know why we yield to the superstitions of our Christian brothers so much as to use the word baptize at all. It is not an English but a Greek word. It has one meaning and cannot bear another. Throughout all the classics, without exception, it is not possible to translate it correctly except with the idea of immersion. And believing this and knowing this, if the translation is not complete, he says, we will complete it this morning. Go therefore and teach all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And he says, we believe as a Baptist congregation, we think that our brothers do serious damage to the gospel by baptizing children. We do not think their error a little one. We know it does not touch a vital point, but we do believe that infant baptism is the prop and pillar of popery, and it being removed, popery and puseyism become at once impossible. You've taken away all the idea then of a national godliness and a national religion when you have cut away all liberty to administer Christian ordinances to unconverted persons. Now, I'm not going to hammer on too much about this, but that's the the basic uh, congregational principle that uh, is characteristic of a scripturally faithful Baptist church. 
and this is Spurgeon then expressing his convictions that baptism is for those who are professing their own faith in Christ Jesus. It's a disastrous thing, he says, to call unconverted children Christians or to do anything which may weaken their apprehension of the great fact that until they be converted, they have no part or lot in this matter. Now, he's aware that not everybody thinks the way he does. If you differ from me on this point, he says, bear with me, for my conscience will not let me conceal this solemn truth. And it's good. He's he's uh, emphasising something he's said before, that even though he's not going to divide from Christians as Christians with regard to this point, that just because it may not have to do with the first things, that does not mean it is insignificant. We, he says, are a body of Christians who can fairly and purely teach and baptise. We can obey this command of Christ abroad as well as at home without running counter to our practice in one place by our practice in the other. We ought to be first and foremost, and if we be not, shame shall cover us for our unfaithfulness. Again, he says, I hear that voice ringing in the Baptist's ear above that of any other man. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Well, he says, I set out to be brief, but I find that I've been long. And so he goes on now to the argument. And his point is that there is a therefore in the text. There is a, a logical sequence. Why do we go to teach all nations? What lies behind this teaching, this making of disciples, this baptizing? It is because Christ has been given all power in heaven and in earth. Three things here, he says. Christ had suffered, bled and died, and he now rises from the dead. As the mediator risen in his glory, he has all power in heaven and in earth. There is no allusion here to his inherent power that is not given to him, that that which belongs to him by native right. His uh, Spurgeon's point is that Christ speaks here not as God in the absolute sense, but as the God-man risen from the grave, mediating in his glory. As mediator, he did not once have this power, but was meek, and weak and despised and forsaken even of God. But now he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high as the redeemer, as the mediator. And that helps us to understand how this applies then to the church of Jesus Christ. So you've got three things. It's the picture of the church's history, it's the church's right, and it is the church's might. First then he says, this is the church's picture. Christ suffers bleeds and dies. But do we then give up his cause? Do we look upon this as forlorn and desolate? His point is that the church knows that it suffers before glory, and therefore we do not give up hope because of the battles that we face in pursuit of the glory of the Christ who himself suffered before he was raised to the highest place. There is no place then for despair. No true-hearted Christian will ever give up any enterprise which God has laid upon him because he fears its ultimate success. If it's God's work, it can and must be accomplished. Napoleon said that difficult is not a French word, and, says Spurgeon, doubtful is not a Christian word. 
We are sure to succeed. The gospel must conquer. It is possible for heaven and earth to pass away, yes, but not for God's word to fail. And therefore it is utterly impossible that any nation or kindred or tongue should to the end stand out against the attacks of love, against the invasion of the armies of King Jesus. So he says, that's a fair argument from the text. Christ is to his people a picture of what they are to be, inasmuch as by his suffering all power was given to him in heaven and in earth, so after the sufferings of the church, the wounds of her martyrs and the deaths of her confessors, power shall be given to her in heaven and in earth, and she shall reign with Christ over the nations gloriously. Then the churches write, If all power is given to Christ in heaven and in earth, then when the church is sent by Christ, it goes with the authority of Christ. The preachers of the gospel are his ambassadors, and we have a right anywhere and anywhere, rights in heaven without limit, rights in earth without bound, for all power is given to Christ to Christ and by him authority to the church and therefore she has a patent, a claim not to be disputed, to take to herself all countries and kingdoms because the power above is given unto Christ. His point basically is that the church is entitled in its ministers and missionaries, in its agents and its members to go to every person, every place and speak the word of God for salvation. Wherever there is found a man, he says, there is the minister free to preach. The whole world is our parish. We know of no fetter upon our feet and no gag upon our lips. Now, today we would be told, well, that's gross arrogance. Who are you to think like that? Who are you to take that to yourself? Who are you to march where you will and speak as you wish? To which the answer would be, me, I'm a nobody, I'm a nothing, but I'm not going in my authority, but in Christ's. I'm not taking the right to myself, I've been given it by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Brothers, says Spurgeon, the church has a right anywhere and everywhere. A right, not because she is tolerated, that word is an insult, not because the law permits, the law permitting or not permitting, tolerated or untolerated, everywhere beneath the arch of God's heaven, God's servants have a right to preach. Claim the right, he says, and in every place teach and preach Jesus Christ continually. But now, lastly, the argument of the text contains the church's might. All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You therefore have not just the right, but the power to teach. You must succeed. You shall prevail. There never lived another man except Christ who could say, All power is given to me. And now Spurgeon begins to develop and extend that that notion because he wants us to understand that not only is Christ sending us with an authority that is his to tell us where to go, but he sends us with the expectation that he will govern all things for the accomplishment of his purposes. So all Christ is given to power in providence, all power is given to Christ in politics, all power is given to Christ in heaven as well as on earth. So he says, 
Everything that takes place in this world is under the control of Jesus Christ. He has power over the wills of men as well as over the waves of the sea. And then specifically, although you should be praying for these things and pleading that Christ will open the way for you, remember that Christ has power over politics. Now, we need to remember this in days when perhaps either we despair because we say, well, if so-and-so is on the throne or if so-and-so has power, if so-and-so is prime minister or president, then what can we hope to accomplish? The flip side of that is when we foolishly imagine that because someone that we hope will favour the church or Christian doctrine is raised to a high place, therefore the way will become plain for us. No, says Spurgeon, it's Christ who we trust, not men. He can make wars and create peace with a view to the propagation of his word. He can change the hearts of princes and preside in the councils of senates. He can cause nations long shut up to be opened to the truth. And again, he uses some particular examples. But he says, you need to understand that this is Christ who is at work and we need to take the opportunity where the doors are opening we should be making Christ known and that power of Christ's is not just upon earth but it's also in heaven all angels bow before him and the cherubim and the seraphim are ready to obey his high behests power is given to him over the plenitude the fullness of the holy spirit he can pour out the mysterious energy in such abundance that nations can be born in a day now he's not talking here about the holy spirit as an impersonal force he's simply reminding us that christ in heaven has power to accomplish his purposes he is the one who gives the holy spirit to his people the spirit proceeds from the father and from the son Christ has power too to intercede with the Father and shall presently send out men to preach, presently give the people the mind to hear and the hearers the will to obey. Christ is not absent from us. Yes, in flesh and blood he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, but in body as well as spirit still he lives, adorned with the beauty and dew of his youth, and he is with us, a leader whose power is undiminished, who does not lie like the, the other leaders in the coffin, who does not lie with the other great men of the world in the tomb but whose influence in the highest heavens has suffered no impairing, the universal Lord. Oh, then, says Spurgeon, let our efforts be worthy of the power which Christ has promised. Let our zeal be in some respect akin to his zeal, and let our energy prove that the energy divine has not been withdrawn. Now again, he's back where he began. I wish that I could preach this morning but the more earnestly I feel, the more scant are my words with which to express my emotions. Some preachers have uh, spoken of preaching as, as having a, a sort of a, a pregnancy with a sermon, and these are the pangs that are required to bring it forth. And Spurgeon is having, a, in that sense, a hard birth. He's heavily burdened. He wants these things to be worked out. He wants the people to get them. And so earnest is his intent that he's struggling to say what he wants to say. 
I've prayed to God, he says, and a prayer it is I shall repeat until I die. I have prayed that out of this church there may go many missionaries. I will never be content with a congregation or with a church or even with ministers, many of whom have already gone out of our midst. We must have missionaries from this church. Spurgeon is uh, perhaps you might say confusing categories, but but what he means is it's not enough just to be preaching within the congregation. It's not just enough to be preaching around the congregation. The preaching must go forth beyond the congregation. And he is eager and earnest that the church which he serves should have a part in that teaching to the very ends of the earth. Now he says we need to train our young soldiers for the master's army. God will send the men, faith will find the means, and we will ourselves send out our own men to proclaim the name of Jesus. We're not going to be clasping them to ourselves, clutching them to ourselves. If we had five, we'd we'd send five. If we had ten, we might send eight and keep a couple for ourselves to preach more effectively where we are. But we want this to be the, the dynamic reality of the congregation which we serve. Is that true for us? Is that what we desire? That the gospel will be preached not just among us, but from us, and the word of God will roll out to the farthest parts of our nations and beyond our nation to the very ends of the earth. Oh, now, says Spurgeon, it's a singular thing, it's a notable thing, that there are some young men who get the idea into their minds that they would like to go into foreign lands. But, he says, these are frequently the most unfit men and have not the power and ability. It's the perpetual concern of the church that uh, sometimes the people who are most confident that they're set apart for a work are the ones who are least fitted for it. So, he says, I would, my desire is, that the divine call would come to some gifted men, some perhaps who might have wealth of their own. What could be a better object in life than to devote yourself and your substance to the Redeemer's cause? Those who've got brilliant prospects before them, perhaps they've not got yet the responsibilities of family life. Why not surrender those prospects to become a humble preacher of Christ? The greater the sacrifice, the more honour to yourself and the more acceptable to him. And again he comes back, I would go if I thought I should, but I am constrained in my conscience to remain by the present opportunities. And effectively he's saying, if I cannot go myself, would to God that others will go from us and that I would be, as it were, a springboard, uh, an opportunity, uh, uh, an opener of the door, so that others should go with our support. It will never do then to send out to the heathen men who are of no use at home. We cannot send men of third and tenth class abilities, but rather the highest and the best. The bravest men must lead the van. So often we have people who say, I'm ready to go and preach anywhere. And the answer needs to be, what you mean, except in your own family, except to your own neighbours, except on your own doorstep, except to your own community. Yes, you're, you're proclaiming a readiness to do somewhere else what it seems you're not ready to do here. Where's the energy? Where's the organisation? Where's the investment? Where's the commitment? Where's the sacrifice? Show it here and then you will show it wherever you go. 
And so says Spurgeon, O God, anoint your servants, we beseech you. Put the fire into their hearts that never can be quenched. Make it so hot within their bones that they must die or preach, that they must lie down with broken hearts or else be free to preach where Christ was never heard. And he says, I envy you if it's your lot to go to China, the country so lately opened to us. He's picked that up all the way through the sermon, although we haven't mentioned it particularly. I would gladly change places with you. I would renounce the partial ease of a settlement in this country and renounce the responsibilities of so large a congregation as this with pleasure if I might have your honours. He He's back with, uh, the, uh, with, with Henry at Agincourt and changes the word, ministers in England now abed, might think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap while any speak who fought with us upon this glorious day. There are 1,600 members in the church at the time when he's speaking. A congregation of 6,000. Is there not one, he says, not one who will not ask, here am I, send me. Must heathens perish? Must the gods of the heathen hold their thrones? Must Christ's kingdom fail? Are there none to own Christ, none to maintain his righteous cause? If there are any who are willing, let us who are compelled to stay at home do our best to help them. Let us see to it that they lack nothing, for we cannot send them out without purse or scrip. Let's fill the purse of the men whose hearts God has filled and take care of them temporarily, leaving it for God to preserve them spiritually. And of course, he closes as he would by saying, and it's just a sentence here, let me teach you that if you believe in the Lord Christ, you too shall be saved. What shall we say then to this sermon? I think we need to ask ourselves simply this, these things being so, what is our heart, what is our prayer, and what, if appropriate, can we do individually for the preaching of the word of God, the teaching of the nations that God has put in the hands of the church of Jesus Christ? Are you one who ought to be sent? Are you one who ought to do the sending? Is the church taken up with this prayerfully and practically? Are we willing to make the investments so that in the, the darkest parts of our own communities, in the darkest part of our own countries, and in the darkest parts of the globe, the ministry of the good news of Jesus Christ is going forth? Let us then identify, encourage, equip, support, pray for, financially provide for such men, and ask that the Lord God of heaven would be pleased in sending them forth into the harvest field to get for himself a mighty harvest. The missionaries charge and charter. May God help us to take those things to heart and then God willing next week if the Lord helps us uh, something of a, of a counterpoint or a reminder to this the church conservative and aggressive sermon 393. And again, as ever, if you want to follow along, you can find us at Media Gratii. Uh, you can search for that. You can uh, find us and follow along with this podcast. You can make sure that you uh, get us at uh, mediagratii.org podcasts. There's a, 
a weekly letter where you can follow along the featured sermon and see what the other sermons are that you can read in the week. But I hope you'll come back and listen again in the future and I hope that these things will be a blessing to your souls. My name is Jeremy Walker and it's been a privilege to work through this sermon with you. Take care and God bless. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Walker and From the Heart of Spurgeon is a podcast from Media Gratii. For more resources like this, including a biographical film of Spurgeon's life and labours, visit mediagratii.org.